0: Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, please would you turn to Acts chapter 4, Acts 4. Um, if we've not met before, um, I'd like to welcome you to GBC. My name is Justin and I am a student pastor here. Uh, and as always, it, is just, it really is such a privilege to be able to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, and my prayer for us all has been uh, that indeed that we would our, our hearts and our minds would be gripped with the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. So we're going to look at his word together this morning and we pray that he would do just that. So let us read our passage together this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. I'll read that for us and then we'll pray that the Lord would help us this morning. Acts 4 from verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. and against his anointed For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we praise and thank you that not only you have saved us by the name of Jesus, but so too are you shaping us by his name. We ask that you would please help us to lift the name of Jesus high this morning as he speaks to us through his word. And please comfort us and convict us by his spirit. In the mighty name of Jesus, do we ask these things, Father. Amen. I want to begin this morning by asking you all a question. Uh, Do you know what your name means? Do you know what your name means? My older girls, Emerson and Georgia, uh, they're just obsessed with the meaning of names. Uh, and if any of you have been fortunate enough to have a sustained conversation with them, you would likely to have been asked what it is that your name means. Uh, and all of this started after just one conversation that Stace and I had uh, with them about uh, you know, telling them what their names mean. Because there's so much in a name, isn't there? It's not just how it sounds or how it feels, but there is character and identity, and meaning and purpose somehow all wrapped up into it. Maybe you don't quite feel like that's true of you, and that would be understandable, because I don't think maybe our Western society doesn't place as much importance on these things anymore. But I'm sure all the parents in the room uh, can remember those long nights and probably arguments as you poured over the big book of baby names, right? There may have been disagreements because that, of that you know, one particular name that uh, some ratty kid had, and it's totally ruined it for you forever. But especially as Christians, I think that we do place so much emphasis on the meaning of names uh, that we choose because there's so many references in the Bible to the meaning of names, isn't there? So we decided on the name Emerson because it means brave and powerful and her middle name Zoe because it means life and also because of Stacy's older sister who passed away. But Georgia, on the other hand, means worker of the land. But that isn't really why we picked it. We picked it because we wanted to name her after my pop, which is her grandfather, who many of you know, George. And it makes it so special to us because of the love and the relationship and the memories that we share with our poppy George. You might be familiar with the prophet Hosea in the Bible. Do you remember what his kids' names meant? One of them meant no mercy and one of them meant not my people. Um, so I like to remind Georgia that things could have you know, been much worse for her. Uh, There's so much to a name, isn't there? Identity and character, meaning and purpose, memories and stories, even power and authority, all bound up in a name. And what we will see this morning is that the preaching of the name of Jesus calls us to submit to him for salvation and for being shaped by him. You might have picked up on this constant refrain In our passage this morning, there is this name that is brought up time and time again, and not just referring to a name, but the name. Our passage is part two of this story in the life of the early church, where Peter and John were on the way to the temple where they encounter a man who had been lame from birth. And what does Peter do? He simply pulls him up in the name of Jesus, and there he is, walking and leaping and praising God. We're all singing the song in our heads right now, aren't we? A crowd gathers, and Peter takes this opportunity to preach his second recorded sermon in the book of Acts. And these same themes, they appear again. He says to the crowds, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead. Repent, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out. And it's this very thing that greatly annoys the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. You see, not only was Peter accusing the people of killing Jesus, but he's also proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, which is just outrageous. So they arrested Peter and John and put them into prison for the night. It's interesting, this first experience of persecution in the early church is somewhat brushed over by Luke. You would suppose that by the time that he was writing this, that, you know, Uh, No one would bat an eyelid over being in prison for just a night. But maybe could you imagine what Peter and John might have been feeling as they sat in that cell overnight? And then as they would be dragged into the very same room that Jesus was unfairly tried in front of the same religious leaders, perhaps they might have thought that their time was up and the words of their Lord might have been ringing in their ears that no one, no servant is greater than their master. For if they persecuted me, then they will also persecute you. We might imagine this would have been the case, but our author doesn't record this for us. But there is a detail that's just remarkable, which he does include for us. And it's right there in verse 4. But many of those who who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The church, it almost doubles in size, doesn't it? And Luke doesn't ascribe it to uh, a miracle because Peter and John received wealth and, or acclaim or status. But rather, even in spite of the persecution, those who heard the word believed and the number of men reached 5,000, which probably meant that there was up to 10,000, including the women and children. And this leads us into our first point that Jesus, he is the only name by which we must be saved. This is at the very core of the preaching, uh, the apostles preach in the book of Acts. Time and time again, the apostles proclaim, you killed him, God raised him, therefore repent and believe. At Pentecost, Peter boldly proclaims Jesus as the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that anyone who calls on his name would be saved. And then again, just last week, we saw in chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, where Peter says, you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So perhaps it feels a little ignorant of the religious leaders who had gathered together to put uh, Peter and John on trial to ask this in verse 7, by what power, by what name did you do this? But I think it's reasonable to assume that they, they already know the answer to the question, right? They heard the preaching. And so they're asking so that they are able to get something of a confession from them in order to condemn them in their actions. And classic Peter takes this as another opportunity to preach yet another sermon and addresses the rulers and elders of the people directly. And what does he say? The very same things that he said in chapter 2 and 3. Let's read verses 8 through 12 together. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you by which we must be saved. You killed him, God raised him. Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. But perhaps you picked up on one difference in Peter's preaching uh, this time. Yes, he speaks of the good deed done to the crippled man. But just there in verse 11 is the sting in Peter's preaching. Peter takes a quote, from Psalm 118, verse 22, and directly applies it to the religious leaders. Here it is uh, straight from the Psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then Peter, he he applies it to his hearers by adding these two things. First, that Jesus, Jesus is the stone that was rejected. And then second, Jesus is the stone that has been rejected by you. What a slap in the face to the religious leaders. See, Psalm 118, it praises, it's this Thanksgiving psalm, it praises God for his steadfast love and for the way that he deals with the righteous ones. And then one, the one verse in the whole psalm that tells of those who rejected God's salvation Peter applies to the leader of God's people. Those who were entrusted with God's law and were meant to care for spiritually for his people were actually the very ones who God rejected, uh, who, who rejected God's means of salvation. And so God has rejected them. Jesus is this stone that was rejected, but he has become the cornerstone the cornerstone, which is that first block that is laid from which all other bricks find their place and reference to. He is the only name by which we must be saved. Many people today, sometimes even those who profess to be Christians, will say that there are many ways to God. Maybe you've heard this illustration before, that God is, uh, is, at top of this, is on the top of this mountain, And all the different religions are these different paths up the mountain to God. Even these so-called Christians, they might uh, do this, they might say these things to avoid persecution and division. But the witness of the New Testament couldn't be further from this. Now, don't mishear me. The gospel is for everyone. Nobody should be excluded from the invitation to turn from their sin and trust in God. But salvation is exclusive because Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. Because the truth of it is, there is no climbing your way up the mountain to God. But rather, God came down the mountain in the person of Jesus to come and do what we could never do for ourselves, As our Lord said, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through him. Those who claim that there are many ways to God are no better than the religious leaders of the day. Rejecting Jesus as the only name by which we must be saved is to reject him as the cornerstone. And I wonder how deeply our Christianity is shaped by this truth. Are we fully convinced that Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved? And if we are, then do we live like that's true? Does this bring an urgency and a clarity to our sharing of the gospel with our family and friends? Parents, does this shape the way that we teach our children the things of Christ? It ought to, it must. How could we leave any room in people's minds that we could somehow know God or be right with him by any other way apart from Jesus? We will only be fooling them and leaving them in their sin to be judged by God apart from Jesus. Unless we hold out the truth to them that Jesus is the only way by which we must be saved. You're here this morning and you're just hearing this for the first time. I want to plead with you. Come to Jesus and trust him. Trust in his name alone. You will be made right with God. Do you know what Jesus' name means? Uh, it's from the Hebrew name Yeshua. And it means deliverance and salvation. Come to Jesus. To trust in his name is to trust in the works that he has done to bring deliverance and salvation to his people. And he is bringing deliverance and salvation to his people through the gospel. That leads us to our second point that Jesus is the name by which the new people of God are being shaped. In verses 13 to 22 we read the rest of Peter and John's trial and their boldness and the influence on the people they just it just left the religious leaders astonished. They saw that Peter and John they were common, uneducated men by the way that they spoke. They recognized that they'd been with Jesus and they saw the man who was healed standing beside them. And they were left speechless had nothing to say in opposition to Peter and John. And so scrambling for a response, they call this emergency meeting and they ask each other, what do we do with these men? We cannot deny the the sign done by them and all the people are on their side. What do we do? And as much as they want to condemn Peter and John and to silence them somehow from speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus, they have no response to them. And so they threaten them like the parents of a teenager who so badly wants to rein in the actions of their kid, they feel powerless and resort to threats. I'll ground you. No TV. I'll take your phone away. Maybe they will follow up and we'll see that the religious leaders certainly will uh, take far more drastic action against the church. But in this moment, they're just threats and they found no way to punish them. You see, Because these builders have rejected the cornerstone, no longer do they have any authority over God's people. God has taken it away from them, and they're just left to be vessels of Satan and join in his opposition to God's people and his kingdom. Instead of believing that Jesus is the Messiah, they've rejected him. And God has given the authority that was with them now to his apostles as the leaders of the new people of God. And Jesus is now shaping his new people through these apostles. Ephesians 2 tells us of what this looks like. It says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles And prophets, Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so, this new people of God being redeemed and built together by the name of Jesus is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone. And in what way are the apostles and prophets the foundation? It's through the scriptures. It's through their apostolic writings, which is God's word to us. Jesus is shaping his new people by the apostles through the word of God. It was preached by them then, and it is now written For us to have now. And Peter and John knew this, right? Because in response to the charge not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus, they reply in verse 19 Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They were compelled to speak the word of Christ because it is the very means by which Jesus is shaping, is bringing his new people by the apostles. Remind ourselves of verse four again. But many of those who heard the word believed. May this be such an encouragement to all of us who suffer for the name of Jesus, whether it be in your workplace or your families. While it's unlikely that any of us will have to spend the night in prison Uh, for the name of Jesus, maybe at least not yet anyway, we can certainly find it difficult and struggle to speak about Jesus freely and boldly, can't we? There's so much pressure from the world around us to keep our faith to ourselves. And sometimes it can really cost us to speak up. Maybe you've missed promotions, or you've lost relationships, or you've been excluded socially because of your resolve to proclaim the name of Jesus. Or maybe, because of your fear of losing these things, it has kept you from proclaiming the name of Jesus. But let this passage be an encouragement to us all. His word will not fail. It will accomplish all that it purposes. Whether we are discouraged or whether we're timid, Let us take heart in the name of Jesus and be bold in proclaiming it. Another question I think we ought to ask ourselves in light of this is is this one. What other authorities in my life are demanding my submission in the place of Jesus? Because that's what the religious leaders are demanding, right? Listen to us. Don't listen to Jesus and that is what makes the Apostle's response so poignant. We must disobey you because to not speak of Jesus is to disobey God. And so what, what are the things in our life that are demanding our submission to their authority in the place of Jesus? Could be being swept up by gaming or social media or Netflix or materialism, always thinking about the next renovation or the next holiday, our work or our family demanding control over our lives in the place of God, sexual desires, looking to alcohol for satisfaction, building up your bank account, wearing the latest clothes, driving the latest car, taking out your anger and frustration on your kids. All of these things and more. They're constantly demanding to be more authoritative in our lives than Jesus. And my guess is it is these things that actually keep us from proclaiming the name of Jesus more than any individuals do. So let us say to these things, is it right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God? Much easier to respond to some of those things, uh, obviously, because some are more sinful than others, right? But even how many good things that we receive from God Himself, we allow ourselves to seek and to serve rather than Jesus. Jesus is shaping His new people by the word of the apostles. And the example set for us is, is it right? To listen to God or to you? To these people or to these things that are attempting to claim authority over us? As we consider how to walk by faith, this question I think can be a wonderful diagnostic tool that will help us to be a people that are shaped by the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Let us live in obedience to him in every way because he has saved us. He has delivered us. He has brought us into his kingdom. Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. And Jesus is the name by which the new people of God are being shaped because of what we see in verses 23 through 31. And that is this, that Jesus is the name by which God's sovereign plan of salvation has been fulfilled. So in response to the threats from the religious leaders, the apostles gather with their friends to pray. And what they don't pray for, I think we can learn a lot from, right? They don't pray for favor with the religious people or for their salvation or for their judgment. They don't pray that they can heal more people and they don't pray that... Uh, for another Pentecost experience. But instead they pray for boldness. Boldness to continue to speak the word, even in the face of the threats from the religious leaders. The gospel is the word of God, and it is right at the heart of the early church. and We ought never to stray from it. But let us not be so simplistic in that we say, Yes, so too should we pray for boldness yeah that it, it's a good thing, but I think more importantly for us to consider what is the basis for this boldness? What is it about God that makes the apostles even think that they could receive boldness from him? We see this in verses twenty four through twenty eight I'm sorry. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant whom you anointed, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your and your plan had predestined to take place. They recognize that God used the very people that, Jesus, that put Jesus to death to fulfill his sovereign plan of salvation. These sinful people did only what God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. Sometimes we might think of God's sovereignty um, a bit like the children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Sure, he kind of knows everything, and he's, like, he's big enough to hold it all, right? But there's room in our, is there room in our thinking of God that he is able to be sovereign even over the most sinful actions in this world? Now, this doesn't take away from human responsibility at all, right? For what, is Peter, what has Peter been preaching this whole time? You killed him. And even in verse 28, we saw that they did whatever God had planned to take place. But God is sovereign over all. And that is why the apostles could pray for boldness. You see, God is even sovereign over the religious leaders and their threats. The apostles knew that nothing could happen to them apart from the will of God. So God is even sovereign over your exclusion from your family because you love the Lord and desire to walk with him. God is sovereign even over your teenager who is now rejecting the Lord even though you've prayed so hard for them. God is sovereign over your illness that's making you wonder whether he even cares He is sovereign, he is near, and he does care. The sovereignty of God ought to bring us such assurance and hope in all these things. And that's why the apostles could pray using Psalm 2, seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. It was no mere accident that Jesus was killed and then it's like God had to raise him to life. No, Jesus dying in our place was not even plan B in this world after Adam and Eve sinned. It was always plan A. And so the apostles prayed, seeing God's sovereign plan of salvation in the Scriptures, having been fulfilled in Jesus. See, we can understand the Old Testament uh, to be kind of like an ultrasound. Uh, Maybe you might have heard this illustration before. Um, We've had four babies, so like ultrasounds, uh, yeah, nothing new to us, no foreign concept. But every so often, uh, for roughly nine months, you get a glimpse of what your baby is like, don't you? It starts off more or less being like this little blob that's got a heartbeat, and that's pretty cool. Uh, But then after a few weeks, you start to see arms and legs, and a bit later on, you might find out if it's a boy or a girl. And as each scan goes on, more and more clearly, can you see your little baby? And towards the end of our, preg- and yeah, all of our pregnancies, I think, Stace and I could even see, you know, the big foury lips, you know, right there on the screen. It was very precious. But the ultrasound, that image on the screen, it's not the baby, is it? That's not the baby. It's just a picture or a shadow of the real thing. And so, too, can we understand the Old Testament Scriptures More and more clearly, can we see the person and work of Jesus as we move from the law to the history of Israel to the Psalms and the wisdom literature and the prophetic writings? And every so often, we'll get to see this really clear picture of the baby. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, didn't he? The apostles knew that that time had come. The baby had been born, and they were experiencing the joy of it really being there with them. They had seen the fulfillment of God's sovereign plan of salvation in Jesus. And they responded to these threats in prayer, and they prayed like God is really sovereign. So how might we live and pray like God is really sovereign? Do we truly believe what we profess? That the gospel is God's power for salvation. And that we must trust in God and in his word to do that work. Do we seek him in prayer for boldness? To share the gospel with our family and friends? Do we spend our money and use our time and make decisions, whether big or small, like God is really sovereign? Do we seek to be filled with the Spirit so that we would continue to speak the Word of God in boldness, whether that be with our kids at home or with our colleagues at work or with our unbelieving family? Let's all pray that we would be bold even to encourage one another with the Word of God. Let us trust in Jesus with all that we are. Trust that he is indeed the name that is above all names. The one who conquered sin and death. For the name of Jesus calls us to submit to him for salvation and for being shaped by him. He really has done it all for us. He does not demand that we fix ourselves, live better lives before coming to him. No, he came to us even while we were still sinners. And so his name is the name that brings salvation because of all that he has done for us. Coming to live the sinless life and dying the sinner's death in our place, he has now been raised to life. And he has ascended and he is seated at the right hand of the Father and rules and reigns over everything continues to does his work, to do his work through the Spirit and through his people. The so brothers and sisters, let us come. Let us come and submit to the name that is above every name. Let us bring all that we are and live in light of His glorious grace that He has given to us. Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in that city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, would you please grant to all of us boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus to a world around us that has rejected you and your kingdom. Would you please give us grace with our unbelieving family and friends to boldly speak the gospel to them, And may we do so knowing that you are sovereign over all things and that you hold the power to change their hearts through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. May your word this morning accomplish in us all which it has been given. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.